Chapter 2, Parts 1 and 2 of War in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Frank Booker. War in the Air by H.G. Wells. Chapter 2, Parts 1 and 2. It did not occur to either Tom or Bert Smallways that this remarkable aerial performance of Mr. Butteridge was likely to affect either of their lives in any special manner, that it would in any way single them out from the millions about them, and when they had witnessed it from the crest of Bun Hill and seen the fly-like mechanism, its rotating planes of golden haze in the sunset, sink humming to the harbor of its shed again. They turned back towards the sunken green grocery beneath the great iron standard of the London to Brighton monorail, and their minds reverted to the discussion that had engaged them before Mr. Buttridge's triumph had come in sight out of the London haze. It was a difficult and unsuccessful discussion. They had to carry it on in shouts because of the moaning and roaring of the gyroscopic motor-cars that traversed the high streets, and in its nature it was contentious and private. The grub business was in difficulties, and Grubb, in a moment of financial eloquence, had given a half-share in it to Bert, whose relation with his employer had been for some time unsalaried and polished and informal. Bert was trying to impress Tom with the idea that the reconstructed Grubb in small ways offered unprecedented and unparalleled opportunities to the judicious small investor. It was coming home to Bert as though it were an entirely new fact, that Tom was singularly impervious to ideas. In the end, he put the financial issues on one side, and making the thing entirely a matter of fraternal affection, succeeded in borrowing a sovereign on the security of his word of honor. The firm of Grubb and Smallways, formerly Grubb, had indeed been singularly unlucky in the last year or so, for many years the business had struggled along with a flavor of romantic insecurity in a small, dissolute-looking shop in the high street, adorned with brilliantly colored advertisements of cycles, a display of bells, trouser clips, oil cans, pump clips, flame cases, wallets and other accessories, and the announcement of bicycles on hire, repairs, free inflation, petrol, and similar attractions. They were agents for several obscure makes of bicycle. Two samples constituted the stock, and occasionally they effected a sale. They also repaired punctures and did their best, though luck was not always on their side, with any other repairing that was brought to them. They handled a line of cheap gramophones and did a little with musical boxes. The staple of their business was, however, the letting of bicycles on hire. It was a singular trade obeying no known commercial or economic principles. Indeed, no principles. There was a stock of ladies' and gentlemen's bicycles in a state of disrepair that passes description, and these, the hiring stock, were let to unexacting and reckless people, inexpert in the things of this world, at a nominal rate of one shilling for the first hour and sixpence for an hour afterwards. But really there were no fixed prices, and insistent boys could get bicycles, and the thrill of danger for an hour for so low a sum as threepence, provided they could convince Grubb that that was all they had. The saddle and handlebar were then sketchily adjusted by Grubb, a deposit exacted, 
except in the case of familiar boys, the machine lubricated and the adventurer started upon his career. Usually he or she came back, but at times when the accident was serious, Bert or Grubb had to go out and fetch the machine home. Hire was always charged up to the hour of return to the shop and deducted from the deposit. It was rare that a bicycle started out from their hands in a state of pedantic efficiency. Romantic possibilities of accident lurked in the worn thread of the screw that adjusted the saddle, in the precarious pedals, in the loose-knit chain, in the handlebars, above all the brakes and tires. Tappings and clankings and strange rhythmic creakings awoke as the intrepid hirer pedaled out into the country. Then perhaps the bell would jam, or a brake fail to act on a hill, or the seat pillar would get loose and the saddle drop three or four inches with a disconcerting bump. Or the loose and rattling chain would jump the cogs of the chain wheel as the machine ran downhill, and so bring the mechanism to an abrupt and disastrous stop, without at the same time arresting the forward momentum of the rider. Or a tire would bang, or sigh quietly and give up the struggle for efficiency. When the hirer returned, a heated pedestrian, Grubb would ignore all verbal complaints and examine the machine gravely. This ain't had fair usage, he used to begin. He became a mild embodiment of the spirit of reason. You can't expect a bicycle to take you up in its arms and carry you, he used to say. You've got to show intelligence. After all, it's machinery. Sometimes the process of liquidating the consequent claims bordered on violence. It was always a very rhetorical and often a trying affair, but in these progressive times you have to make a noise to get a living. It is often hard work, but nevertheless this hiring was a fairly steady source of profit until one day all the panes in the window and door were broken and the stock on sale in the window greatly damaged and disordered by two overcritical hirers with no sense of rhetorical irrelevance. They were big, coarse stokers from Gravesend. One was annoyed because his left pedal had come off and the other because his tire had become deflated. Small and indeed negligible accidents by Bun Hill standards due entirely to the ungentle handling of the delicate machines entrusted to them, and they failed to see clearly how they put themselves in the wrong by this method of argument. It is a poor way of convincing a man that he has let you a defective machine to throw his foot-pump about his shop and take his stock of gongs outside in order to return them through the window-panes. It carried no real conviction to the minds of either Grubb or Bert. It only irritated and vexed them. One quarrel makes many, and this unpleasantness led to a violent dispute between Grubb and the landlord upon the moral aspects of and legal responsibility for the consequent reglazing. In the end, Grubb and Smallways were put to the expense of a strategic nocturnal removal to another position. It was a position they had long considered. It was a small, shed-like shop with a plate-glass window and one room behind, just at the sharp bend in the road at the bottom of Bun Hill, and here they struggled along bravely in spite of persistent annoyance from their former landlord, hoping for certain eventualities the peculiar situation of the shop seemed to promise. Here, too, they were doomed to disappointment. The high road from London to Brighton that ran through Bun Hill was like the British Empire or the British Constitution, a thing that had grown to its present importance. 
unlike any other roads in Europe, the British high roads have never been subjected to any original attempts to grade or straighten them out, and to that, no doubt, their peculiar picturesqueness is to be ascribed. The old Bun Hill High Street drops at its end for perhaps eighty or a hundred feet of descent, at an angle of one in five, turns at right angles to the left, runs in a curve for about thirty yards to a brick bridge over the dry ditch that had once been the Otterbourne, and then bends sharply to the right again around a dense clump of trees, and goes on, a simple, straightforward, peaceful high road. There had been one or two horse and van and bicycle accidents in the place before the sharp Burt and Grub Took was built, and to be frank it was the probability of others that attracted them to it. Its possibilities had come to them first with a humorous flavour. "'Here's one of the places where a chap might get a living by keeping ends,' said Grub. "'You can't get a living keeping ends,' said Bert. "'You'd keep the end and have it spatchcocked,' said Grub. "'The motor chaps would pay for it.' When they really came to take the place, they remembered this conversation. Hens, however, were out of the question. There was no place for a run unless they had it in the shop. It would have been obviously out of place there. The shop was much more modern than their former one, and had a plate-glass front. "'Sooner or later,' said Bert, "'we shall get a motor-car through this.' "'That's all right,' said Grub. "'Compensation. I don't mind when that motor-car comes along. I don't mind if it gives me a shock to the system.' "'And meanwhile,' said Bert, with great artfulness, "'I'm going to buy myself a dog.' He did. He bought three in succession. He surprised the people at the dog's home in Buttersea by demanding a deaf retriever and rejecting every candidate that pricked up its ears. I want a good, deaf, slow-moving dog, he said. A dog that doesn't put himself out for things. They displayed inconvenient curiosity. They declared a great scarcity of deaf dogs. You'll see, they said. Dogs are not deaf. Mine's got to be, said Bert. I've had dogs that aren't deaf. All I want is like this, you see. I sell gramophones. Naturally, I want to make them talk and tootle a bit to show them off. Well, a dog that isn't deaf doesn't like it. Gets excited, smells around, barks, growls. That upsets the customers, see? Then a dog that has got his earring fancies things. Makes burglars out of passing tramps. Wants to fight every motor that makes a whiz. All very well if you aren't livening up. But all places lively enough. I don't want a dog of that sort. I want a quiet dog. In the end, he got three in succession, but none of them turned out well. The first strayed off into the infinite, heeding no appeals. A second was killed in the night by a fruit motor wagon, which fled before Grub could get down. The third got itself entangled in the front wheel of a passing cyclist, who came through the plate glass and proved to be an acker out of work and an undischarged bankrupt. He demanded compensation for some fancied injury, would hear nothing of the valuable dog he had killed or the window he had broken, obliged Grub by sheer physical obduracy to straighten his buckled front wheel, and pestered the struggling firm with a series of inhumanely worded solicitor's letter. Grub answered them stingingly and put himself, Bert thought, in the wrong. Affairs got more and more exasperating and strained under these pressures. The window was boarded up, and an unpleasant altercations about their delay in repairing it with the new landlord, a Bun Hill butcher, 
and a loud bellowing unreasonable person at that served to remind them of their unsettled troubles with the old things were at this pitch when bert bethought himself of creating a sort of debonshire capital in the business for the benefit of tom but as i have said tom had no enterprise in his composition his idea of investment was the stocking he bribed his brother not to keep the offer open and then ill luck made its last lunge at their crumbling business and brought it to the ground it is a poor heart that never rejoices and whitsuntide had an air of coming as an agreeable break in the business complications of grub and smallways encouraged by the practical outcome of bert's negotiations with his brother and by the fact that half the hiring stock was out from saturday to monday they decided to ignore the residuum of hiring trade on sunday and devote that day to much-needed relaxation and refreshment to have in fact an unstinted good time a beano on whit sunday and return invigorated to grapple with the difficulties and the bank holiday repairs on monday no good thing was ever done by exhausted and dispirited men it happened that they had made the acquaintance of two young ladies in employment in clapham miss flossie bright and miss edna bunthorne and it was resolved therefore to make a cheerful little cyclist party of four into the heart of kent and to picnic and spend an indolent afternoon and evening among the trees and bracken between ashford and maidstone miss bright could ride a bicycle and a machine was found for her not among the hiring stock but specifically in the sample held for sale miss bunthorne whom bert particularly affected could not ride and so with some difficulty he hired a basket-work trailer from the big business of rays in the clapham road to see our young men brightly dressed and cigarettes alight wheeling off to the rendezvous grub guiding the lady's machine beside him with one skilful hand and bert tuff-tuffing steadily was to realize how pluck may triumph even over insolvency their landlord the butcher said grr as they passed and shouted go it in a loud savage tone to their receding backs much they cared the weather was fine and though they were on their way southward before nine o'clock there was already a great multitude of holiday people abroad upon the roads there were quantities of young men and women on bicycles and motor bicycles and a majority of gyroscopic motor cars running bicycle fashion on two wheels mingled with old-fashioned four-wheel traffic bank holiday times always bring out old stored-away vehicles and odd people one saw tri-cars and electric brogams and dilapidated old racing cars with huge pneumatic tires once our holiday-maker saw a horse and cart and once a youth riding a black horse amidst the badinage of a passers-by and there were several navigable gas airships not to mention balloons in the air it was all immensely interesting and refreshing after the dark anxieties of a shop edna wore a brown straw hat with puppies that suited her admirably and sat in the trailer like a queen and the eight-year-old motor-bicycle ran like a thing of yesterday little it seemed to matter to mr bert smallways that a newspaper placard proclaimed germany denounces the monroe doctrine ambiguous attitude of japan 
What will Britain do? Is it war? The sort of thing was always going on, and on holidays one disregarded it as a matter of course. Weekdays in the slack time after the midday meal, then perhaps one might worry about the empire and international politics, but not on a sunny Sunday with a pretty girl trailing behind one, an envious cyclist trying to race you. Nor did our young people attach any great importance to the flitting suggestions of military activity they glimpsed ever and again. Near Maidstone they came on a string of eleven motor-guns of peculiar construction, halted by the roadside, with a number of business-like engineers grouped about them, watching through field-glasses some sort of entrenchment that was going on near the crest of the downs. It signified nothing to Bert. "'What's up?' said Edna. "'Oh, manoeuvres,' said Bert. "'Oh, I thought they did them at Easter,' said Edna, and troubled no more. The last great British war, the Boer War, was over and forgotten, and the public had lost the fashion of expert military criticism. Our four young people picnicked cheerfully and were happy in the manner of a happiness that was an ancient mode in Nineveh. Eyes were bright, Grub was funny and almost witty, and Bert achieved epigrams. The hedges were full of honeysuckle and dog-roses. In the woods the distant toot-toot-toot of the traffic on the dust-hazy high road might have been no more than the horns of Elfland. They laughed and gossiped and picked flowers and made love and talked, and the girls smoked cigarettes. Also they scuffled playfully. Among other things they talked aeronautics and how they would come for a picnic together in Bert's flying machine before ten years were out. The world seemed full of amusing possibilities that afternoon. They wondered what their great-grandparents would have thought of aeronautics. In the evening about seven, the party turned homeward, expecting no disaster, and it was only on the crest of the downs between Rotham and Kingsdown that disaster came. They had come up the hill in the twilight. Bert was anxious to get as far as possible before he lit or attempted to light, for the issue was a doubtful one, his lamps, and they had scorched past a number of cyclists, and by a four-wheeled motor-car of the old style, lamed by a deflated tyre. Some dust had penetrated Bert's horn, and the result was a curious, amusing wheezing sound had got into his honk-honk. For the sake of merriment and glory he was making this sound as much as possible, and Edna was in fits of laughter in the trailer. They made a sort of rushing cheerfulness along the road that affected their fellow travellers variously, according to their temperaments. She did notice a good lot of bluish, evil-smelling smoke coming from about the bearings between his feet, but she thought this was one of the natural concomitants of motor traction, and troubled no more about it until abruptly it burst into a little yellow-tipped flame. Bert! she screamed. But Bert had put on the brakes with such suddenness that she found herself involved with his legs as he dismounted. She got to the side of the road and hastily readjusted her hat, which had suffered. Gaw! said Bert. He stood for some fatal seconds, watching the petrol drip and catch, and the flame, which was now beginning to smell of an animal as well as oil, spread and grew. His chief idea was the sorrowful one that he had not sold the machine second-hand a year ago, and that he ought to have done so, a good idea in its way, but not immediately helpful. He turned upon Edna sharply. "'Get a lot of wet sand,' he said, and he wheeled the machine a little towards the side of the roadway, and laid it down, and looked about for a supply of wet sand. The flames 
received this as a helpful attention and made the most of it. They seemed to brighten, and the twilight to deepen about them. The road was a flinty road in the chalk country, and ill-provided with sand. Edna accosted a short, fat cyclist. "'We want wet sand,' she said, and added, "'Our motor's on fire!' The short, fat cyclist stared blankly for a moment, and then with a helpful cry began to scrabble in the road grit, whereupon Bert and Edna also scrabbled in the road grit. Other cyclists arrived, dismounted, and stood about, and their flame-lit faces expressed satisfaction, interest, curiosity. "'Wet sand,' said the short, fat man, scrabbling terribly. "'Wet sand!' one joined him. They threw hard-earned handfuls of road grit upon the flames, which accepted them with enthusiasm. Grub arrived, riding hard. He was shouting something. He sprang off and threw his bicycle into the hedge. "'Don't throw water on it!' he said. "'Don't throw water on it!' He displayed commanding presence of mind. He became captain of the occasions. Others were glad to repeat the things he said and imitate his actions. "'Don't throw water on it!' they cried. Also, there was no water. "'Beat it out, you fools!' he said. He seized a rug from the trailer. It was an Australian blanket, and Bert's winter coverlet, and began to beat at the burning petrol. For a wonderful minute he seemed to succeed, but he scattered burning pools of petrol on the road, and others, fired by his enthusiasm, imitated his action. Bert caught up a trailer cushion and began to beat. There was another cushion and a tablecloth, and these also were seized. A young hero pulled off his jacket and joined the beating, and for a moment there was less talking than hard breathing and a tremendous flapping. Flossie arrived on the outskirts of the crowd, cried, "'Oh, my God!' and burst loudly into tears. "'Help!' she said, and fire! The lame motor-car arrived and stopped in consternation. A tall, goggled, grey-haired man who was driving inquired with an Oxford intonation and a clear, careful enunciation, "'Can we help at all?' It became manifest that the rug, the tablecloth, the cushion, and the jacket were getting smeared with petrol and burning. The soul seemed to go out of the cushion. Bert was swaying, and the air was full of feathers, like a snowstorm in the still twilight. Bert had got very dusty and sweaty and strenuous. It seemed to him his weapon had been wrested from him at the moment of victory. The fire lay like a dying thing, close to the ground and wicked. It gave a leap of anguish at every whack of the beaters, but now Grubb had gone off to stamp out the burning blanket. The others were lacking just at the moment of victory. One had dropped the cushion and was running to the motor-car. "'Here!' cried Bert. "'Keep on!' He flung the deflated burning rags of cushion aside, whipped off his jacket, and sprang at the flames with a shout. He stamped into the ruin until flames run up his boots. Edna saw him, a red-lit hero, and thought it was good to be a man. A bystander was hit by a hot halfpenny flying out of the air, and then Bert thought of the papers in his pockets and staggered back, trying to extinguish his burning jacket, checked, repulsed dismayed. Edna was struck by the benevolent appearance of an elderly spectator in a silk hat and sabbatical garments. Ah! Oh, she cried to him, help this young man! How can you stand and see it? A cry of the tarpaulin arose, 
an earnest-looking man in a light grey cycling suit, had suddenly appeared at the side of the lame motor-car and addressed the owner. "'Have you a tarpaulin?' he said. "'Yes,' said the gentlemanly man. "'Yes, we've got a tarpaulin.' "'That's it,' said the earnest-looking man, and suddenly shouting, "'Let's have it, quick!' The gentlemanly man, with feeble and deprecatory gestures, and in a manner of a hypnotized person, produced an excellent large tarpaulin. "'Here!' cried the earnest-looking man to Grub. "'Catch hold!' Then everybody realized that a new method was to be tried. A number of willing hands seized upon the Oxford gentleman's tarpaulin. The others stood away with approving noises. The tarpaulin was held over the burning bicycle like a canopy, and then smothered down upon it. "'We ought to have done this before,' panted Grubb. There was a moment of triumph. The flames vanished. Everyone who could contrive to do so touched the edge of the tarpaulin. Bert held down a corner with two hands and a foot. The tarpaulin bulged up in the centre, seemed to be suppressing triumphant exultation. Then its self-approval became too much for it. It burst into a bright red smile in the centre. It was exactly like the opening of a mouth. It laughed with a gust of flames. They were reflected redly in the observant goggles of the gentleman who owned the tarpaulin. Everybody recoiled. "'Save the trailer!' cried someone. And that was the last sound in the battle. But the trailer could not be detached. Its wicker work had caught, and it was the last thing to burn. A sort of hush fell upon the gathering. The petrol burnt low, the wicker-work trailer banged and crackled. The crowd divided itself into an outer circle of critics, advisers, and secondary characters who had played undistinguished parts, or no parts at all, in the affair, and a central group of heated and distressed principals. A young man with an inquiring mind and a considerable knowledge of motor-bicycles fixed on to grub and wanted to argue that the thing could not have happened. Grubb was short and inattentive with him, and the young man withdrew to the back of the crowd, and there told the benevolent old gentleman in the silk hat that people who went out of machines they didn't understand had only themselves to blame if things went wrong. The old gentleman let him talk for some time, and then remarked in a tone of rapturous enjoyment, "'Stone deaf!' and added, "'Nasty things!' A rosy-faced man in a straw hat claimed attention. "'I did save the front wheel,' he said. "'You'd have had that tire catch, too, if I hadn't kept it turning it round.' It became manifest that this was so. The front wheel had retained its tire, was intact, was still rotating slowly among the blackened and twisted ruins of the rest of the machine. It had something of that air of conscious virtue, of unimpeachable respectability that distinguishes a rent-collector in a low neighbourhood. "'That wheel's worth a pound,' said the rosy-faced man, making a song of it. "'I kept it turning round.' Newcomers kept arriving from the south with the question, "'What's up?' until it got on Grubb's nerves. Londonward, the crowd was constantly losing people. They would mount their various wheels with the satisfied manner of spectators who have had the best. Their voices would recede into the twilight. One would hear a laugh at the memory of this particularly salient incident or that. "'I'm afraid,' said the gentleman of the motor-car, "'my tarpaulin's a bit done for.' Grubb admitted that the owner was the best judge of that. "'Nothing else I can do for you,' said the gentleman of the motor-car. It may be with a suspicion of irony. 
Bert was roused to action. Look here, he said. That's my young lady. If she ain't owned by Tenny, lock her out, see? Well, all my money was in my jacket pocket, and it's all mixed up with the burnt stuff, and that's too hot to touch. Is clap him out of your way. All in a day's work, said the gentleman with the motor car, and turned to Edna. Very pleased indeed, he said, if you'll come with us. We're late for dinner as it is, so it won't make much difference to us to go home by way of Clapham. We've got to get to Surbiton anyhow. I'm afraid you'll find us a little slow. But what's Bert going to do, said Edna. I don't know that we can accommodate Bert, said the motor-car gentleman, though we're tremendously anxious to oblige. You couldn't take the old lot, said Bert, waving his hand at the debauched and blackened ruins on the ground. I'm awfully afraid I can't, said the Oxford man. Awfully sorry, you know. Then I'll have to stick here for a bit, said Bert. i got to see the thing through. You go on, Edna. Don't like leaving you, Bert. You can't help it, Edna. The last Edna saw of Bert was his figure in charred and blackened shirt-sleeves, standing in the dusk. He was musing deeply by the mixed ironwork and ashes of his vanished motor-bicycle, a melancholy figure. His retinue of spectators had shrunk now to a half a dozen figures. Flossie and Grubb were preparing to follow her desertion. "'Cheer up, old Bert!' cried Edna, with artificial cheerfulness. "'So long!' "'So long, Edna,' says Bert. "'See you tomorrow.' See you tomorrow, said Bert, though he was destined, as a matter of fact, to see much of the habitable glow before he saw her again. Bert began to light matches from a borrowed boxful and searched for a half-crown that still eluded him among the charred remains. His face was grave and melancholy. I wish that hadn't happened, said Flossie, riding on with Grubb. And at last Bert was left almost alone, a sad blackened Promethean figure, cursed by the gift of fire. He had entertained vague ideas of hiring a cart, of achieving miraculous repairs, of still snatching some residual value from his one chief possession. Now in the darkening night he perceived the vanity of such intentions. Truth came to him bleakly and laid her chill conviction upon him. He took hold of the handlebar, stood the thing up, tried to push it forward. The tireless hind wheel was jammed hopelessly, even as he feared. For a moment or so he stood upholding his machine, a motionless despair. Then with a great effort he thrust the ruins from him into the ditch, kicked it once, regarded it for a moment, and turned his face resolutely Londonward. He did not once look back. "'That's the end of that game,' said Bert. "'No more tough, tough, tough for Bert Smallways for a year or two. "'Good-bye, holidays. "'Oh, I ought to have sold that blasted thing "'when I had a chance three years ago.'" End of Chapter 2 Parts 1 and 2 Recording by Frank Booker, Bangor, Maine, USA